Um, for those that don't know, I'm Becca Benny. I'm Jeff's daughter. Um, they needed a... And mine. Oh, and... <laughs> I didn't want you guys to get the wrong idea. <laughs> they needed a young, hip female uh, teacher, so that's me, bringing the, bringing the youth uh, perspective. Um, so today we're talking about First Thessalonians. Luckily, it's only five chapters. It's short. I hope at least some of you all read. Um, or it's just committed to your heart because it's like so fast. Um, so... Maybe. Maybe. There we go. Um, so we're going. We're going to use the same uh, same mode as last time. So we're going to talk about who wrote it, when it was written, where it was written, why it was written. So uh, for those of you all who haven't been to this class before, the concept is we're going over all the books of the New Testament in the order that they were written. So last week we talked about the first epistle, Galatians, and now we're on to the second epistle, 1 Thessalonians. So same as last week, the person who wrote it was Paul. You will see this as a recurring theme throughout the, uh, at least the fall. Uh, so, he wrote this on his second missionary journey. For those of you who remember, um, Paul had three missionary journeys. Um, we'll show you a map later on. And again, this is a repeat. Um, so, Silas slash Silvanus, depending on uh, what type of translation you have, uh, and Timothy, they were also there. Um, poor Timothy doesn't even get mentioned most of the time, but we know he was there because he got sent back later. So... So these dates are all guesstimates. It's all our best guess. So you want to do plus or minus about two years for all of this. So Paul's second missionary journey lasted about seven years, seven to eight years. He left around 49. He got back around 56. So he arrived at Thessalonica in 51. And then he actually wrote 1 Thessalonians in 52, about a year later. Um, so believe. So the next thing we have is Acts, and this is one of the main reasons we know what actually happened when he was in Thessalonica or Thessalonica. You'll hear it both ways. Um, so Acts almost sort of works as like a prequel. It comes earlier in the New Testament because the New Testament in this sense is chronological, but the Acts was written after Paul's missionary journey. So um, Acts is talking about what happened in his missionary journey, and then First Thessalonians is a follow-up to that. But uh, here are the actual verses from Acts. <coughs> when Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis in Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, or Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. 
They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. When they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others postpone and let them go. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. I just realized I never pushed start. Oh, you pushed start. Okay. Thank God. This is being uh, recorded for posterity, because I know all of y'all will want to listen to this. (laughs) So, again, Acts happens earlier in the New Testament, but we're talking about First Thessalonians, which happens earlier in time. So what actually happens is that, as you can see, Paul only spent a few weeks in Thessalonica. It's estimated about six weeks. And then he continued on his missionary journey. Um, in those six weeks, uh, the church boomed. Uh, it became really excited really fast and there were a lot of people that converted to Christianity, mostly Gentiles. So that is one of the reasons that Paul decided to write this book. Um, well, he didn't write the book. He wrote a letter and he turned it into a book. There's a great point here. The irony, in the first century, a believing Jew went said prayers three times a day. Included in that prayer was that the Messiah would come and he would kill Caesar. That they would, that the Jews would be in the rightful place, that the kingdom that ruled the world. So you see the, the Jews here come before the, the magistrate and what do they say? We have no king but Caesar. So the irony that the Jews would do that uh, is just, it's all, it's, this, this, echoes what the Jews do at Jesus' crucifixion. You know, they do the same thing. They go in front of uh, Pilate and say, we have no king but Caesar. You know, crucify this guy. This guy's not the king. They're doing exactly the same thing here. Saying, we don't have, a, we don't have any king but Caesar. Caesar's our king. Even though every day they would go to bed praying that Caesar would die. So again, here is the map of Paul's second journey, uh, missionary journey. So down here in Jerusalem is where it all started. So he goes up around, up around, up around. And up here is Thessalonica. This is what we're concerned about. And as you'll see later on, when he flees, he goes to Berea. That's what we just read about in Acts. And then uh, he actually writes the letter either in Athens or Corinth. And that's about right here, a year later. So, what actually happened at Thessalonica? Um, Again, a lot of the people were very quickly converted. And as we read, not many of those people were Jewish. Uh, When Paul gets to a new town, his very first thing is to go to the synagogue and try and talk from there. However, Thessalonican Jews were not having it. So uh, he ended up converting a lot of Gentiles. And as you'll see uh, in the book, in the letter, 1 Thessalonians, 
a lot of these people were really gung-ho right off the bat. So, um, Paul's very, a letter to them is, is very encouraging. Um, sometimes the letters are a lot of like, hey, you guys are really messed up. Here's the actual right way to do things. But in First Thessalonians, you'll see that a lot of it is. He um, uses a lot of family language. He talks about them as his children, and he's their father, and he loves them, and um, he's the crown on their jewel, or, or they're the crown on his jewel. Wait. Jewel on his jewel. Jewel on his jewel. Off the way. So one of the things he talks about is God's versus, God versus idols and Caesar. So um, who knows anything about... Greek gods. Is there a lot of them or just one of them? <laughs> a lot, right? And who is the god of love? Aphrodite. Aphrodite, right. So, um, in the culture of Thessalonica, which still exists today, it's called Thessaloniki, um, but if you look at modern day Greece, you've got Athens down at the bottom, and then up in northern Greece, it's pretty much Thessaloniki and a bunch of smaller towns. Um, but that's still there in modern day Greece. And that was Thessalonica. So in that culture, it was like, oh, I'm going to the market. Let me make a, make a sacrifice to the market god. Oh, my daughter's getting married. Let me make a sacrifice to the wedding god. Oh, I need to sell grain. Let me make a sacrifice to the grain god. It was very much a, a polytheistic culture. And you made sacrifices to whatever god. It was involved in what you were doing. But as we all know from Greek tales, gods are very capricious, and so like who knows if the sacrifice was actually going to work. So Paul comes into that culture and says, like, no, 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 no. There's just one God, and he's not capricious. He loves you. So it was very much different from the culture in which these people were used to living. So in those six weeks, he manages to completely transform their lifestyle. And then as we see, uh, mostly Jews complained to the Roman overlords and Paul and Silas and Timothy get run out of town. Uh, within, the, within the year, Paul gets word, Paul continues on his journey, and then Paul gets word that the church in Thessalonica is in trouble. So he sends Timothy back, check it out, they're my babies, I've heard they're in trouble. So Timothy goes, and then he reports back and says, they're totally fine. Um, I don't know what the reports were about. And so when Paul writes his letter back in 1 Thessalonians, he'll actually say, the report from Timothy was super great, super glad to hear it, y'all are doing strong, very excited to hear it. Um, so that's sort of the backstory of what is not expressly said in 1 Thessalonians, but 1 Thessalonians makes a heck of a lot more sense if you understand that background. So, as we spoke about, because Paul was continuing on his missionary journey, and it took him about seven years, he was about a year out, so he was still on his journey. Sometimes he spent a couple of weeks at a location, sometimes he spent, as in the case of Ephesus, up to two years. So that's really, in addition to the fact that it took a long time to travel in between cities, the fact that he would spend months to years at certain locations planning churches explains why his journey was so long.
So he was about a year out when he heard about the Thessalonians, and so he was still on his missionary journey when he wrote First Thessalonians. And here's that map again. So Jerusalem's down here. Beep, 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 beep. And remember, we talked about um, Galatians last week, and here's Galatia over here. So now we're up here in Thessal Thessalonica. He gets kicked out. He continues on his journey. And <coughs> he's in between Athens and Corinth when he writes the letter. So when he hears that Thessalonican, the Thessalonican church or assembly, Ecclesia is the Greek word that's used. Uh, he hears that they might be in trouble, so he sends Timothy back. Timothy is able to pop up to Thessalonica. Everything's fine. He comes back. Paul writes and says, super glad to hear that y'all are all right. <coughs> and then, as you can see, Paul continues on with his journey. Here's Ephesus, where Paul hangs out for two years. And then comes all the way back to Jerusalem. So that's all I have about the background of 1 Thessalonians. So I'd like to talk about the actual substance of what's in the book itself. So the very first thing is the theme of the book. For those of you who have read, um, did anyone notice a theme that we sort of talk about as a Pauline theme, but not necessarily 1 Thessalonians? For those of you that go to Cracker Barrel, it's on like cutesy signs. Live, laugh, love. Live, love. Close. Close to live, laugh, love. What's the Christian version of live, laugh, love? Love is there. So love is one of the three. There's three things. Faith, hope, and love. Right. So faith, hope, and love is something that uh, Paul talks about a couple of times throughout First Thessalonians. So we're used to faith, hope, and love referring to First Corinthians. But you'll see that that's a theme that goes throughout 1 Thessalonians. So he talks about faith, hope, and love, and the three of them all together, when you have them, uh, sort of roll up into a holiness lifestyle. So um, we're skipping point number two for just a second. But um, lots of times people think about holiness as a lack of something. So a lack of sin, a lack of... Uh, something that makes you dirty. That's what holiness is. Uh, but instead, Paul talks about it in a positive sense. So it is when you have faith, when you have hope, when you have love, that is a holiness lifestyle. So again, coming back to the idea that this is a polytheistic culture, so there's a lot of rule following that happens in the Greek culture. If you want to be a good Greek, you, uh, you have to do this rule, you have to do that rule, you have to whatever. And so Paul's talking about, it's not about following rules, it's about a lifestyle, it's about a holiness lifestyle. Um, so he talks about those three virtues in particular when it comes to being holy. Secondly, uh, he talks about strength and persecution. So we don't know exactly what it was that caused Timothy to go back. Um, what the church was struggling with. However, we can guess that it was persecution, and that persecution led to the death of some of their members. Um, Murdered them. Um, however, Paul does talk about expressly 
how Jesus was persecuted, how Paul has been persecuted, and now the church at Thessalonica has been persecuted. And so it's almost like a, Paul tells them to wear it like as a badge of honor. So um, you've been persecuted, but you should know that that makes you part of this larger story of Christians being um, put down for the truth. And so don't be discouraged by that. That means that you're on the right track. So in addition to Paul encouraging the church at Thessalonica, he does talk about a couple of just straight, boring theological statements. The first one is he talks about um, believers who have died. So this probably ties into the idea that the Thessalonican church was concerned that like, okay, so we think Jesus is going to come back any day now, but some of our believers have been martyred. Like what happens to those people? And Paul said, don't worry about it. The dead people... The dead believers are going to be treated in the same way as believers who are still alive when Jesus comes back. Um, and so he he talks a lot about um, Jesus descending and people going up to greet him. And this is where a lot of like rapture theology comes from. Um, however, we need to be very careful not to look at this literally. So when we talk about Jesus descending... Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that Jesus is definitely up in the clouds right now and he's going to physically come down. We're talking about a metaphor. So, are the dead literally going to get up out of the ground and rise to meet him? We don't know. Um, but, uh, because this is a metaphor, we need to be very careful about being like, that's what it says in the Bible. It says Jesus is going to descend. So... Um, that's the first point. The second and third point are kind of interwoven. It has to do with this idea of holiness, what holiness looks like. So specifically with finances, Paul talks about how you need to be hardworking. And you don't need to be hardworking for personal glory or so you could be financially sound. You need to be hardworking so that you have money that you can spread to others, that you can use to support your brothers and sisters. Um, and the same thing with sexuality. Um, you need to be known as someone who does not fornicate. So because, right, goddess of love, Aphrodite, um, it's part of that culture to just be like, well, gonna sleep with a temple prostitute because that's what the Greek gods told me to do. No, we're being set apart. So we, we don't do that anymore. So it's all about a lifestyle of holiness. So you work hard. You respect your marriage covenant. All of this is have a lifestyle of holiness so that people can look at you and say, like, there's something different about you and that your life is a testament to how Jesus has changed you and now you're living in a lifestyle of holiness. All right, who knows what this is? Who's seen this before? <laughs> Most people. Who can tell me the government that this is associated with? Just a country. Britain. I heard Britain. Yeah. All right, nerds. What era are we talking about here? World War II. World War II, exactly. So even though World War II was 60 years ago, and this was not our country, because we won that little thing called the Revolutionary War, um, this concept has continued on to even our culture today. So that's the concept that we, that is in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians. At one point, Paul says, people are going to come to you and say peace and security. 
Um, that's the Roman equivalent to keep calm and carry on. So it makes sense, even if you don't know that, in the same way that if someone told you to keep calm and carry on, you'd be like, what a great sentiment. But if you know, oh, that's what the British people said in World War II, that was their like, official slogan, then it, it, it makes it a little bit deeper. So that's what we're going to see in chapter 5, where Paul says, people are going to come to you and say peace and security, but instead there's going to be, there's going to be chaos. There's not going to be peace and security. Um, so when you hear the term peace and security, you should be like, oh, that's like keep calm and carry on. So we are going to watch the Bible Gateway recap video. Um, I think this just does a really great job of recapping the, uh, the content in a really succinct way. So I apologize for those people that are like, oh, this again. <laughs> Special trick too, you just click on it. Should we just click on it? Oh, <laughs> it blinked. <laughs> if not, I'm gonna have to do this for memory and it won't be nearly as interesting. Can you draw too? No. <laughs> Paul will be a stick figure. <laughs> in World War II had a population of 200,000 people and 60,000 Jews were murdered uh, in the Holocaust from Thessalonica in World War II. Mm -hmm. I just think that's fascinating. It, uh, about the time, first century, it probably was in the 100,000 because it was the largest city in that region. But just the fact that, uh, that they picked off Jews in Greece and then today, if you go look at the population of it, it's like it's 200,000. That seems to be, I just ponder stuff like that, trying to think, why is that? <laughs> All right, I'm going to bring my tech guy up here. So for those of you that have read First Thessalonians, was there something that really stuck out to you as, as particularly prescient? Well, I have to say, when you hear that phrase, thief in the night, I wonder how many times I had heard that as an ending to sermons growing up. Right. Because that was a, be ready, then a great day coming was the, was the invitation song. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. For those of you that went to church service, I really hope that that's not how uh, Josh ends the service. No. 
Yeah. Uh, it's always exciting to see how people responded all around the, the, the world at that time to a very simple message about Jesus. And they abandoned things and came together. And amazingly enough, it was 1,400 years later before Calvin, uh, Luther, Wesley, Zwingli, and all those folks came up and decided they really for the first time knew what the gospel was. Right. Uh, the church spread much more dynamically during the early years in which a simple message of Jesus was preached that brought unity as opposed to diversity. Right. Do, do we think that this was like the first these folks had ever heard of Jesus? Probably, because like... Even though it had been that long, I mean, what, 20 years since he died? Yeah, probably. I mean, so a lot of the Jewish people who were the first person people, you know, Jesus spoke, I would say, 95% of the time to Jews. Um, they, they thought the message was just for them, right? So they, Paul was one of the very few people that was actually spreading the gospel to Gentiles. So the fact that you saw that Jerusalem was over here, Thessalonica was way over here, probably they had never heard of it before. Mm -hmm. Between the combination of it's only for Jewish people and it was just physically a long distance away. That's right. So this is Golfos. This is one of my favorite places in Iceland. <laughs> um, it actually translates to Golden Falls because when the sun is setting, then this actually looks like gold. So I did not take this picture. This picture was taken from a drone. <laughs> but love it. I, it was. It's. It's one of the few places that I've been that like just snapping a picture on your phone like really didn't capture like how like awesome it was. Anyone thinking about going to Iceland? Let me tell you, it's awesome. One, 50% of the people cannot disprove the existence of elves. So like, they all believe that elves exist. But, um, it's like dark six months out of the year. So like, you're like, okay, yeah, sure. I mean, like, if I didn't see sunlight for six months, I would probably believe in elves too. Um, so, and like, there are glaciers and geysers and puffins and <coughs> waterfalls, just all like within like a 10 minute drive of each other. Maybe, maybe. Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. This is most likely the earliest letter that we have. <laughs> well, that's wrong anyway, because... And the backstory for it is found in the Acts. So where Paul and his co-worker Silas went to the ancient Greek city of Thessalonica. And after just one month of telling people the good news about Jesus, a large number of Jewish and Greek people gave their allegiance to Jesus, and they formed the first church community there. But trouble was brewing. Paul's announcement of the risen... Jesus as the true Lord of the world, it led to suspicion. So the Christians in Thessalonica were eventually accused. 
used of defying Caesar, the Roman emperor, when they said that there is another king, Jesus. And this led to a persecution that got so intense, Paul and Silas actually had to flee from the city. This was painful for them because they loved the people there so much. And so this letter is Paul's attempt to reconnect with the Christians in Thessalonica after he got a report from Timothy that they were doing more than... Okay, they were flourishing despite this intense persecution. He designed the letter to have two main movements. First is a celebration of their faithfulness to Jesus, and then he challenges them to keep growing as followers of Jesus. And then these two movements are surrounded by three prayers. The letter opens with a thanksgiving prayer, the two movements are linked together by a transitional prayer, and then the whole thing is concluded with a final prayer. It's a beautiful design. Paul opens by giving thanks and celebrating the Thessalonians' faith, their love for others, and their hope in Jesus despite persecution. He goes on to retell the story of their conversion, how they used to be idolatrous polytheists, and they were living in a culture where all of life was permeated by institutions and practices that honored the Greek and Roman gods. And Paul talks about how they turned to away from those idols to serve the living and true God, and that they're now waiting for the coming of God's Son from heaven. So in a city like Thessalonica, transferring your allegiance to the Creator God of Israel and to King Jesus, this came at a cost. Isolation from your neighbors, hostility from your family, but for the Thessalonians, the overwhelming love of Jesus. Jesus, who died for them in the hope of his return, it made it all worth it. Paul then retells the story of his mission in Thessalonica and of the dear friendships he formed with the people. He uses really intimate metaphors here. They treated him like their child, and he became like their mother and like their father. He says, we were happy to share with you not only the good news from God, but our very selves, because we came to dearly love you. Paul reminds us here that the essence of Christian leadership is not about power and having influence. It's about healthy relationships and humble, loving service. He reminds them that he never asked for money. He simply came to love and serve them in the name of Jesus. And so Paul moves on to reflect on their common persecution. Just like Jesus was rejected and killed by his own people, so now Paul is persecuted by his fellow Jews, and the Thessalonians are facing hostility from their Greek neighbors. And Paul draws a strange comfort from knowing that together their sufferings are a way of participating in the story of Jesus' own life and death. Paul then shares about the anguish he experienced when he heard of the hardships the Thessalonians had after he and Silas fled. So he sent Timothy to support them and see how they were doing. And to his joy, Timothy discovered that they were going strong. Wrong. They were faithful to Jesus, they were full of love for God and their neighbors, and they longed to see Paul as much as he longed to see them. And so Paul concludes with a prayer for endurance. 
And what's cool is that he introduces here the topics he's going to address in the letter second half. He prays that God will grow their capacity to love, that they'll strengthen their commitment to holiness as they fix their hope on the return of King Jesus. So he opens the letter second movement by challenging them to a life that's consistent with the teachings of Jesus. So this means, first of all, a serious commitment to holiness and sexual purity. In contrast to the promiscuous, sexually destructive culture around them, they are to follow Jesus' teaching about experiencing the beauty and the power of sex within the haven of a committed marriage covenant relationship. God takes sexual misbehavior seriously, Paul says. It dishonors and destroys people and their dignity. Following Jesus also means a commitment to loving and serving others. So Paul instructs them that Christians should be known in the city as reliable people who work really hard, not just to make money, but so that they can have resources to provide for themselves and to generously share with people who are in need. After this, Paul addresses a number of questions the Thessalonians had raised about the future hope of Jesus' return. So some Christians in the church had recently died, most likely killed as martyrs, and their friends and family are wondering about their fate when Jesus returns. And so Paul makes it clear that despite their grief and loss, not even death can separate Christians from the love of Jesus. When he returns as king, he will call both the living and the dead to himself. And Paul uses a really cool image here. He uses language that would normally describe how a city subject to the Roman Caesar would send out a delegation to welcome or meet his arrival. Paul then applies this imagery to the arrival of King Jesus. He too will be greeted by a delegation of his people who will go to meet the Lord in the air as they welcome and escort him back to this world where he'll establish his kingdom of justice and peace. Paul then wants the Thessalonians to see how this hope should motivate faithfulness to Jesus. So he pokes fun at the famous Roman propaganda that it's Caesar who brings peace and security. Of course, Rome's peace came through violence, through enslaving their enemies and military occupation. And Paul warns that Jesus will return as king one day and confront this kind of injustice. Followers of King Jesus should live in the present as if that future day is already here. Despite the nighttime of human evil around them, they should stay sober and awake as the light of God's kingdom dawns here on earth as it is in heaven. Paul closes all of these exhortations and it's like he began with a hopeful prayer that God would permeate their lives with his holiness, that he would set them apart to be completely devoted and blameless until the return of King Jesus. First Thessalonians reminds us that from the very very beginning, following Jesus as king has produced a truly countercultural or holy way of life. And this will sometimes generate suspicion and conflict among our neighbors. But the response of Jesus' followers to such hostility should always be love, meeting opposition with grace and generosity. And this way of life is motivated by hope in the coming kingdom of Jesus that has already begun in his resurrection from the dead. And so holiness, love, and future hope, that's what First Thessalonians is all about. Okay. Perfect. Just making sure it's not going to start playing another video. Okay. 
So that's what the content of First Thessalonians is all about, those five chapters. And I, I really like the way that they say two sections separated by three prayers. Once you see that, you're like, oh, yeah, that does make a lot more sense. Um, rather than when you're just reading it, it's sort of Paul's talking to people, and then it's a prayer, and then he's talking to people again. But when you actually see that, boom, 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 you're like, okay, yeah, 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 that makes sense. Um, just a small note. Uh, so when they're talking about praying to gods, um, by this point, um, so right now we're with the third Roman emperor. The first Roman emperor was Julius Caesar, right. And then the second one was his nephew Augustus. So um, the people, the current Caesar kept being like, you know what? The last Caesar was a god. So the people were like, okay, well, we see the pattern now. So even though you're not dead, Caesar, we're going to call you a god too. So when they say that uh, they were praying to multiple gods, and that was part of the Greek and Roman, Greco-Roman lifestyle, uh, they also prayed to current Caesar as a god. So um, it was especially worrisome to the Greeks and Romans that um, Christians were like, no, we're not going to pray to the current Caesar. We're, we're praying to the true God. Um, so that it, when you bring to the fact that not only is Caesar a king, Caesar is also a god. So um, that contributed to the reason why they decided to kick Paul and Silas slash Silvanus and Timothy out of Thessalonica. What stood out to you all about this this video? So what stood up about what you were just saying is that idea when you explicitly say your political leaders are gods, I think it might be easier for Christians to really just draw that line of saying, no, we honor our God, not politics. And I, I'm glad we don't call our president and our, our leaders gods today, but I think in some ways that that tendency toward that idolatry is still there. It's just not made explicit of like, what's right. the source of our hope? Um, and, and so it's a little more subtle, but that, that we still have to do what the Thessalonians did and distinctly separate ourselves. Yeah, that's really, I like what you said about the source of hope. Um, yeah, so you, you have to take uh, the idea of you still give to Caesar what is Caesar. You still pay your taxes. We know every time we go out to lunch after <laughs> church, we have to pay sales tax, right? Um, but in addition to that, you don't find your source of hope and peace and security and keeping calm and carrying on in the government you find that source of hope in the one true god yeah anything else that's that stuck out sorry i'm more interactive than jeff i'm sure you have lots of fun facts that you want to share <laughs> okay yeah what's a fun right. fact that you want to share what fun fact you want to share the uh they talked about there about Caesar coming to town. What Paul is doing to the, remember most of Thessalonians, 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 Thessalonians are poor. And so when Caesar came to town, the leading citizens were all gathered together by the governor and they went out and met him. And then they escorted him back to town. So the, the picture Paul is drawing here is that all the Christians, dead 
and alive are suddenly promoted to the leading citizen because they're going to go up and escort Christ back to earth. Metaphorically. Metaphorically. Yeah, we're not sure. You know, no or no. There's a lot of theology built that a lot of people write on 1 Thessalonians that their entire theology is built on this picture. Paul, Paul right, it, it is not literal. Paul is saying when Jesus comes back, he is mirroring this image that all the citizens of those days knew that when someone powerful came to town, the leading citizens went out. So what he's saying is, all you guys who are poor and are slaves now, you're the same as every leading citizen. You're as powerful and as important as they are. And so that in Christ, which which goes back to what he said in Galatians, is that there's no slave, there's no free, there's no men, women, whatever. Everybody's the same in Christ. Same picture here. No matter who you are, you will be the same when Christ comes. We will all go to, to greet him and escort him to wherever the kingdom is going to be. Any other questions or comments? Yeah. It stuck out to me, and I don't remember exactly how they say it, but when it said that they're to live now as as it will be in the future, that, that stuck out to me. Right. So this this comes in the uh, middle of his passion, uh, his path. Passage. Passage, thank you. <laughs> About being children of light. So the idea of the thief is going to come in the darkness um, and peace and security. Um, this is all related to the idea that people sleep in the night, people get drunk in the night, people aren't vigilant in the night. Um, however, in the daytime they are, and so you should be a child of the day, a child of light. You need to treat the present like... The, the coming is is happening and all of that um don't don't be like <clears throat> coming at a later date be like he's coming now and um and in that sense you are a child of light you're a child of the daytime i think we have time for like one more observation or question randall do you have anything <laughs> I, I, I'm my mind goes to crazy. I, I, I'm thinking of N.T. Wright does a great job of talking about the words that Paul uses polemically against Rome and that Paul is in essence picking a fight when uh, when he talks about good news, Eoangelum. That Eoangelum was typically the, uh, of what, what they said about the Caesars. They'd run through the uh, villages and say, Good news to the sea. Well, he picks that same word and he uses it about Jesus. Uh, just, uh, there, there's all kinds of words that he uses, not all of the Thessalonians, but it, uh, that was sort of my mind was mm -hmm. at that point in time. Um, I just think it's fascinating the way Paul sets it up. And I also don't understand where uh, I, I read First Thessalonians and I don't. Get a, what I understand the reason the writing for Second Thessalonians was that all the people in uh, the church had sold everything and we were sitting on a hill waiting for Jesus to come back. Right. I just don't get that from reading this. I get the eschatological part of it. I just don't see the imminence of that happening. Right. I mean, this overall is a very 
affirmative letter. Right. Um, you can tell that he really loves this <coughs> church. And um, also they were making waves. Even though they were young, people in the entire region were noticing that they were transformed by Christ and making note of the fact that they were they were different. And it really helps that they lived in a sex-driven polytheistic society. So if they're not going to be that way, then they're going to stick out like a sore thumb. And people notice. But you'll see in Second Thessalonians, it's, it's not all sunshine and rainbows. <laughs> well, yeah. I just uh, kind of noticed or thought about that he never, there's never an assurance that the persecution on, her, on here is going to go away. Right. It's always that the other is so much greater and present. And I don't particularly like that message, but it's just a reality. Right. I feel like a lot of comfort that we give today is like, this too shall pass. You can get through it. And Paul's not saying that. Paul's saying like, there's, there's going to be persecution, but his his reassuring message is like that ties you into being like Jesus you're part of the bigger story when the persecution keeps happening well I think that's all the time we have today next week we'll be talking about 2nd Thessalonians I had that pleasure and uh, now I'm going to be gone for work so now dad has that pleasure <laughs> for those of you that have read 2nd Thessalonians you know that I'm using pleasure sarcastically because that is a tough theological read so, I highly recommend reading it beforehand. Um, have a great week, and we'll see you all next week.